Hi everyone, welcome to the Corporate Chat Podcast. Your hosts for today are Cédric Nadeau and myself, Mathis Grandchamp. We're both pursuing a Bachelor of Commerce at McGill University in Finance. Thank you to our sponsors, Deloitte, Samantha of Development, LTD, and Red Bull. Our guest for today is François Tran. He is the president and founder of Tran Macro Research and the Macro Institute. François Tran has over 25 years of experience forecasting financial markets and is the only portfolio strategist ever inducted into the Institutional Investor Analyst Hall of Fame. His framework is rooted in a deep understanding of the macro forces that drive the ebb and flow of the business cycle and how interest rates and Fed policy help shape these trends. And without further ado, here's our conversation with François Tran. Hi, Mr. Tran. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We'd love to kick off the interview by asking you about your background and how you ended up as president and founder at Tran Macro Research, in addition to being one of the top strategists on Wall Street. Uh, that's. Uh, I hope you have a bit of time. That's a long story. Um, so it started with a, you know, I have uh, two degrees from in economics from the University of Montreal. And um, my first job when I graduated, I worked for the Canadian Department of Finance in Ottawa for a couple of years. And, um, and then I got a job with a, um, a company in Montreal called BCA which stands for Bank Credit Analyst Research Group. And it's a it's a macro think tank that's been around, I think, since the late 1940s. So it's been around for uh, quite some time. And so that's kind of where I started, you know, in the research business, if you will. Um, I was there a few years. I moved to uh, a similar type of company in the U.S. And then um, I eventually made my way to New York where I worked for a bank called uh, Brown Brothers Harriman, which is the oldest commercial bank in the U.S. It's not as well known as some of the others, but it's been around since 1818, so for over 200 years. Um, and my big break was um, uh, going to Bear Stearns in 2002, where I was the chief strategist. I was there for five years, and uh, I uh, left in early 2007, not because I had an inkling of what was going to happen in the financial crisis, but I joined a uh, what was a small company in those days called uh, ISI. Um, and most people thought I was a little bit crazy to, you know, leave one of the top banks in a very visible, you know, role um, to join a small company. But in what I did, they were kind of a player. You know, the person that ran ISI, Ed Hyman, uh, is the top economist on Wall Street and has been, you know, for at this point for 40 years. And so, um, and his pitch to me was that he was trying to create, you know, what he called a macro hall of fame. So where he wanted to have the top strategist, he was a top economist. He wanted to have the top policy people, the top market technician, and he en- ended up doing that. And so that was a phenomenal um uh, job for me. I truly, really loved it. Um, in any case, um, you know, I went to start on my own company, uh, eventually called Cornerstone. Uh, so similar to what ISI was, if you will. And there was a lot of former ISI people involved in that uh, venture. And um, from there, I went to work for UBS. Um, 
which is one of the largest banks in the world. I thought Bear Stearns was big with 15,000 employees. UBS, I think, had close to 100,000 employees uh, when I joined. Um, and in the pandemic, I left to uh, start my own, being a little contrarian, um, me and my team left to start our own company that is focused still on publishing research, but also, um, you know, we create an education platform that has a program called the Macro Specialist Designation. And that's really what I wanted to, to do ultimately. Obviously, you can't do that at a, uh, at a big firm. And that's what I'm doing now. Great. And now that you own uh, your own company, do you feel there's more leeway when you publish reports as opposed to when you worked on firms on Wall Street? Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, because when you work for when you work for one of the big banks, um, you know, you can't necessarily, you know, you have to choose your words carefully when you speak about um, the Federal Reserve, which you're allowed to do. You just have to choose your words carefully. Um, you know, you can't really ever talk about politics. There's a lot of uh, topics that are taboo. So ironically, I do feel like, you know, I'm obviously in the later stages of my career, but I do feel like this is the first time in my career that I can pretty much say uh, whatever I want. Maybe not to that extreme. I have a few colleagues that are worried that I'm going to get canceled uh someday um but i do have a lot more liberty yes to say uh you know what i you know what what i couldn't perhaps at times in the past and while we're on the topic can you tell us a little bit about your company tram macro research and trans specialist designation yeah and so um i think there's 16 or 17 of us we run a virtual company I don't know that we'll be able to do that forever because obviously as you grow, I think it becomes more uh, more challenging. But you know, on our first day, there was five of us and these were all people I'd worked with for a long time. And so it was easy. And this was during the summer of the pandemic when you couldn't have an office anyways. And so it was easy to do uh, at first. And now, you know, the question does come up as to, you know, when we will have a, an official headquarters. And so uh, Trahan Macro Research is basically publishing research the same way I did. It's, you know, the same clients that I've had historically. Um, and so we publish weekly research. We hold conference calls to, you know, visit our clients. And so basically the same gig I've done for almost 30 years. Um, and the Macro Specialist uh, designation is a program that uh, we created that is focused on applied macro uh you know or how macro applies to financial markets maybe is a better way to think about it it's in structure similar to the cfa program in that it has three levels you have to pass an exam each time um and so it's 54 chapters it's not you know it's not something you can do in a weekend i would say the you know the folks that will complete it the fastest will probably take a year and a half to do it um and you know it, it we we tried to the curriculum does not it's basically focused on things that you would not find in the CFA program or that you would not find in academia. And so I want to say 90% of what we cover are things that, you know, you're not necessarily going to be exposed to elsewhere. Um, and the smell test for me of what I wanted to include was essentially everything that I wish I knew on the first day of my career, you know, that would have helped me be successful. 
And so that's, uh, you know, what the curriculum is focused on. And so it's an online program, but, you know, we, um, we have a monthly call with, uh, with everyone where we answer questions for however long uh, it takes. And we also hold, you know, what we call macro summits, which are two day executive education programs, if you will. We did one in, um, in Montreal uh, back in November. And now we have Toronto um, in two weeks and um, New York and Boston in March. Great. And as a Canadian who studied in Montreal, what do you think was the key to break into Wall Street? Um, well, in those years, it was a little different than it is nowadays. Um, I uh, I think what differentiated me, uh, number one, um, I spoke perfect English, which helped a lot. You know, um, you know, I think your generation is more bilingual than my generation was, uh, but the language of finance is largely English. You know, and the funny thing is, no matter where I go now, it's almost all in English. There's a couple exceptions um, where I do present in French, a couple accounts in Montreal, um, you know, like Hydro-Quebec, there's a few others, um, and then in Geneva, Switzerland. You go to Paris, it's all in English. You're going to hear the you know, the salesperson you're traveling with who's French and the client who's French, and they both speak to each other in English, you know, with <laughs> thick accents. And so, um, so I think that was uh, one, uh, obviously that helped, you know, but, um, you know, there was a lot of luck involved. Obviously, there was a lot of hard work involved. You know, I want to say in the 90s, Wall Street is maybe a little more cliquish than it is today. Um, you know, people hire folks because they come from the same Ivy League school they went to, you know, and so coming from a place that most Americans have never heard of is in those years was very difficult. Nowadays, there's a lot of, you know, I would say um, the hedge fund community especially cares more about talent than they do about where uh, you where you came from. Um, you know, and there's a there's a gentleman who uh, does a program, so it's not you know similar to what I do for macro, but he created a program that is specifically for folks that want to get into the hedge fund industry, and it's called Fundamental Edge. And I happen to know him because he was a client of mine earlier in the, in my career, and uh, you know I look at so I've presented at his program a few times, you know as a invited speaker, and when you look at who's registered it's folks from all walks of life it's very interesting and he um the hedge fund community loves them because what they do is they say all right tell me who the top five people are that are registered in your program right now so he's almost become you know a headhunter in a way you know he's doing um you know placements for jobs for uh, the top hedge funds in the industry and so to me, that's a great example about how, you know, many firms only care about talent nowadays. They don't really care what university you went to. They want results. Um, and so, you know, it was a little bit different in my days than it is, uh, it is now. I think with um, the powers of the internet, uh, you know, it's crazy to think I did this without the internet, uh, but with the powers of the internet, you know, you all have LinkedIn. You can find people easily and find ways to communicate with them easily. 
um, you know, I, I, nothing's impossible. And there's a lot more, you know, when I got to New York in the 90s, I felt like I was, you know, I never ran into anybody uh, from, uh, you know, Quebec. And nowadays there's plenty of very successful people uh, from Quebec on Wall Street. And were there any cultural shock when you started there on, on the Wall Street? Um, yeah, there was uh, there was many cultural uh, shocks along the way. <laughs> um, you know, well, first off, when I joined Brown Brothers Harriman, they they were physically on Wall Street. You know, most of the time now, when you say you work on Wall Street, you're really working in Midtown Manhattan. You're just using mm -hmm. Wall Street figuratively. Uh, but Brown Brothers were physically at 59 Wall Street, and uh, and they had been on that site since the 1830s, uh, which is kind of and and the building looked a little bit that way. I'm not going to lie, um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it was the same marble that had been laid in the 1800s. You know, it was this old. It was very beautiful. It was just old, um, you know, and so it felt like you were walking into a movie you know, uh, sometimes, but I would pinch myself, you know, I'd take a cab, um, to get to work and it was pretty crazy to get out of the cab and, you know, you'd see the wall street sign. Um, and even a couple of years in, I would still, I feel very privileged, uh, to be there. Uh, but you know, Brown brothers was a firm that stood apart to partnership and, um, you know, it was a firm known for, uh, you know, being the firm of the very wealthy, um, you know, kind of long-standing American families, you know, the Rockefellers of the world, uh, you know, those types of, uh, of folks. Um, and so, you know, to say I didn't fit in initially is an understatement, um, you know, but ultimately uh, it was a great uh, experience for me because it did allow me to, you know, move to a bulge bracket, to move to Bear Stearns, you know, from there eventually. I spent about five years there, almost five years. Great. And before we conclude this part of the conversation, I'd like to touch a bit uh, on work-life balance. How's your current work-life balance and how did it change uh, in the course of your career? Um, well, now it's pretty good uh, because now I can, you know, agree or disagree to whatever I want because I have my own firm. Uh, and it doesn't mean I don't work hard, but, uh, you know, I will rearrange a trip if I need to, you know, because of a, a family event. Um, you know, in the 90s, I worked, you know, I mean, I don't think there was a week where I worked less than 80 hours. And once a month, you know, we had a really big push and we'd work, um, well, we worked six days a week. You know, we typically took Saturdays off. And uh, in what I do, Sundays was a big days in those years because we published our reports on Mondays. And so we had to be in the office. And it was the same thing, by the way, uh, in my years at Bear Stearns and initially at ISI, it's really technology that uh, changed things. And so um, sometime at ISI, uh, one of the groups started using Skype. I don't even know if Skype is still around. Uh, I don't think so, but, um, you know, and they basically, I, I realized coming in one day, there was a whole group missing and, uh, you know, they were all doing it virtually. And, you know, nowadays, uh, well, we don't even have uh, a physical office, but, you know, nowadays uh, it does feel like you you, you work more because you have your phone on you all the time. But I think it does help with the uh, work life balance. And so in those years, you know, I put in long hours, 
when you work for a bulge bracket in the role I had, you know, where you're client facing, um, I traveled almost every week, except perhaps in August and December. Um, you know, and so you're on the road, you're visiting every city in the US twice a year. Uh, you know, you're in Europe three times a year, you're in Asia a couple times a year. Uh, so, uh, you know, in those years I traveled a ton. So that was not a, that was not a great, um, you know, work-life balance. But at the same time, remember, I'm getting to Wall Street. I'm not part of any club because, you know, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I wasn't a member of this fraternity or anything like that. And so I always felt like, you know, what I could do to compete was to just work harder than anyone else. And that's always been my recipe. Find the person that everybody says is the hardest worker and outwork them. Um, and so, you know, which is not conducive to a great work-life balance. Um, but, you know, New York is the city that never sleeps. And uh, it, it did feel like that for years. I remember um, my father coming to visit me in New York. I forgot what year this is. And I asked him, I was going to work and I asked him, what are you doing tomorrow? He says, I'm going to the Guggenheim. And it was literally at the corner of my street, the Guggenheim Museum. And he was telling me that it was the third time he was going since I moved to New York. And I've never been to this day, never been to the Statue of Liberty. You know, when you go to New York for work, you know, you end up working a lot. And so I've, you know, there's a lot of the tourist things that I've, I never got to do, believe it or not, to this day. Yeah. And now moving on to the market segments. Um, with the, the rise in interest rate that has taken place over the last two years and the the high level of inflation that have now decreased to 3.4% year over year last December, what are your, your thoughts uh, and forecasts on the economy for 2024 and the years ahead? Um, okay, so I'll tell you what um, consensus thinks right now. Consensus thinks that it's going to be a soft landing, that the economy is somehow not going to enter recession, is going to be able to rebound, everything will be great. And, um, you know, and I sound cynical at times, but that's the exact same conversation that took place in 2007 after the Fed was done raising rates. Um, and then the markets plunged, came back in the spring of 2008. And so in the summer of 2008, again, we're having the same debate. Well, clearly this is a soft landing. Um, and um, I also lived it in the summer of 2000 when the Fed was done raising rates. Everybody thought it was a soft landing. So, you know, there's this natural tendency for equity investors to look at things through, uh, you know, um, a positive perspective. You know, I tend to say a glass half full, you know, mental mode, if you will. Um, but unfortunately, History is pretty clear on what takes place after the Fed raises rates. More often than not, what you experience is a recession. And so if you look at the last 13 Fed tightening cycles, you're going all the way back to the 1950s, uh, you're going to see the economy slowed every single time. Every single time, leading indicators plunged. Uh, and 10 out of those 13 episodes were technical recessions. And so they met the definition of the NBR, you know, as a uh, recession. So there's three exceptions, uh, which are the ones that, uh, you know, Chairman Powell at the Federal Reserve likes to point to, uh, but they were, you know, they just had very unique circumstances. 
And one commonality that all three had was that inflation was extremely low in all three cases. Obviously not what we've just uh, experienced. More importantly for earnings, which is really the lifeblood of the stock market, um, earnings declined 12 out of 13 times. So there's one exception, which happened in the mid 90s. Again, very unusual circumstances, but that's the one example that everybody's latching onto, you know, to say, well, it's happened before, therefore it must be what's gonna take place now. Um, and I can tell you in the summer of um, 08 and 07, I remember it was exactly the same example that it pointed to. Well, we've had rate hikes before that didn't lead to a recession, therefore everything must be okay. So it's normal for people to think that everything will be fine. Um, but the you know history is pretty clear that there's a high risk of recession in the wake of Fed tightening. So I'll give you two stats that will probably give you a sense of what I think lies ahead. Historically, there is a strong correlation between how much tightening the Fed does and how much of a slowdown you eventually see. And so that relationship is very clear. This is the most aggressive Fed tightening cycle I've seen in my career. And so the conclusion that I get from that is that this should be a greater than average economic downturn. Um, and then there's another historical relationship which comes to us from the slope of the yield curve. And academic studies will show you that how long the yield curve is inverted gives you a sense of how long the eventual recession will last. And the yield curve right now has been inverted since October of 2022. So since uh, this is February 1st, we'll call it 17 months now. And so it's guiding us to a recession that if history was gonna be perfect, you know, lasts about a year, something like that. And it doesn't have to last about a year to surprise consensus right now. If you get any recession, I think people will be uh, surprised. And so all this to say that in my experience, the hardest thing uh, that I have to explain are the lead lags between changes in Fed policy and how long it takes to impact the economy. Um, and I have a hard time explaining that after the Fed has raised rates a lot, you know, where we are now. Um, and the same thing after the Fed has cut rates a lot. People think it's not going to work, you know, because it doesn't revive things instantly. Uh, it takes about two years for a change in interest rates to show up in the economy. And since the Fed didn't start raising rates until late March 2022, well, you know, we're, we're basically going to hit that two-year anniversary next month. That's historically where the economy starts to slow. And so it takes a little longer than that to get into recession. Um, but that relationship has been constant since the late 1930s in the U.S. And so I think, you know, this year is going to be a big education for folks on how macro works, because I think people are going to realize that the economy is a lot weaker than, uh, well, most people believe that it's going to reaccelerate from here. But you know, I think they're going to be really, they're going to be really surprised by uh, the outcome in 2024 and 2025. Remember that the Fed just um, stopped raising rates back in July and bond yields didn't peak till October. Remember, it takes two years for change in rates to be fully reflected in the economy. And so what that tells us is that the low point in the economic cycle is probably sometime, you know, in late 2025. So again, about two years after the peak in interest rates.
So we have a ways to go before this cycle is played out. Very interesting. And you think the increase in the US public debt as a percentage to GDP in the past decades would affect uh, this scenario? Um, uh, so yes, but not maybe, you know, not, uh, so I highlight that a lot in my work or I have, you know, when people say it's different this time, um, you know, they usually point to things that are positive reasons why the economy won't slow. You know, it's different this time. AI will save us, you know, and people come up with, uh, all sorts of, uh, scenarios. The, the internet was going to save us in 2000, by the way, that was different this time. And it was different. You know, it did change the world, and yet, you know, growth stocks still went down for years and years and years. And so, you you know, both things can be true. Uh, so um, on fiscal policy, um, you know, different this time, the U.S. has never gone into an economic downturn with this much debt. So this much debt as a share of GDP, never in the history of the country. Uh, it's never gone into an economic downturn with a uh, fiscal deficit that is this high. And in an economic slowdown, the government's revenues go down, the government's expenditures go up, and so the deficit tends to explode. Um, you know, so to me, that doesn't mean that we're staring at a fiscal crisis necessarily. But what it does tell me is that, you know, in the, the odds of getting fiscal stimulus in this cycle are pretty small. Um, or maybe I should reword that and say the odds of getting, uh, you know, significant fiscal stimulus. So of the type that we saw in the pandemic, of the type that we saw in uh, the global financial crisis, um, you know, it, are non-existent. Uh, because when your deficit, when your fiscal, you know, balance is this poor, um, you know, at some point the bond market starts to work against you. Uh, you know, when you start to borrow more money. Uh, and a great example of that recently, that's easier to explain to folks in Canada, by the way, uh, because Canada went through something like this in, uh, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, where Canada had, you know, too much debt, too wide of a deficit going into an economic downturn, and basically, you know, had to right the ship, if you will. And so the recession that only lasted, you know, a year in the US, you know, it felt like it lasted a lot longer uh, in Canada. Uh, so in September of 2022, in the UK, there was a new prime minister and um, she immediately announced tax cuts, you know, at a time when the deficit is substantial and debt to GDP is substantial. And the bond market basically said no, bond yields just shot up. You know, normally you would think that, um, you know, the bond market would have celebrated that. Um, but, you know, she had to back off and actually had to resign. And so, you know, it's one of those weird things, debt, because it doesn't matter. Nobody cares about debt when the economy is growing. It doesn't matter until it becomes the only thing that matters and everybody's obsessed with it. Nobody cared about debt in China, you know, until they started to have excess capacity. All of a sudden, the economy started to decelerate. And I would say the pandemic, you know, kind of accelerated um, you know, their issues with debt. And now China is, you know, it, it feels like um, a time bomb before it, it too experiences a financial crisis. Also, yesterday the Fed announced it would hold interest rates steady. Do you agree with this decision? No. Um, 
no, but you know, we're already, uh, so what are we, we're in February, so we're seven months now uh, past that last rate hike, which was in July. It doesn't feel like that because the Fed didn't tell us they were done until November, um, but it's been uh, seven months already. Historically, they tend to change their tune a lot quicker. Um, and so if you look at how long a plateau in the Fed funds rate lasts, so typically, um, you know, you're talking, so the period between the last rate hike and the first rate cut, usually you're talking about a few months. There's only one time that lasted more than a year, and that's going into the GFC. And the Fed made it very clear after the fact that if they could redo that, they would have started cutting rates earlier. Uh, when we were talking about, um, you know, people's beliefs in the soft landing scenario, and I was telling you how in 2000, you know, and then 2007, it was the same thing. It's the Fed that starts this story. You know, they are usually the ones that are spreading this. And then the minute that you get a couple, you know, better data points, everybody buys into it. And the reason that they, you know, that they start pitching the soft landing is because they don't really have a choice. What are you going to say? We just raised rates and there's going to be a recession. You can't say that. And so because it would be an indictment on them having raised rates too much. And so we raised rates just enough. We're really good at what we do, believe me. And so the economy is going to be fine. It'll be a soft landing. So they're um, almost always the ones that start the narrative. Um, and, um, you know, they're not um, very good at forecasting historically. And don't take my word for it. The San Francisco Fed published a study in 2017 that examined the Fed's track record at forecasting, and they concluded that the Fed was not very good at forecasting. And so, um, you know, that's their own words, uh, not mine, but I can tell you having been in this business that, you know, they they make the wrong calls often as they did in 2021, saying inflation was not a problem, you know? And so um, I think the Fed should already be cutting. I think they've done a tremendous amount of damage, but again, it goes back to understanding lead lags between policy and their impact on the economy. Because when you listen to Fed governors, you know they say, well, we've raised rates and the unemployment rate is still low, therefore everything is fine. <clears throat> it's not how it works. You know, like there's a clear relationship between when they raise rates and when you see the impact on the unemployment rate, and it's about two years later. Uh, so it's surprising sometimes that some of these folks don't understand that. Um, but the reality is that, um, you know, when you study to be an economist, you don't really learn how to forecast. You learn how the economy works and you learn how to interpret data points. So economists are very good at, um, you know, they're very good at explaining why GDP last quarter went up, you know, X percent. And it was due to investments, not consumption. You know, they're very good at explaining data points. Same thing with CPI, et cetera. Um, but most economists are not trained to forecast. You know, you learn that in econometrics. And, um, you know, somebody sent me this table last year, comes from a study that was done maybe a decade ago, but it examined the curriculum of different uh, economics programs around the world, like almost 1,500 universities. And 84% of people that graduate with a degree in economics have never taken a single econometrics class. And so these are the people that, you know, publish research on Wall Street. These are the people that work at central banks, et cetera. 
And so I don't blame economists for being poor at this. Again, you, you're not really trained to uh, to do this. And to me, you know, when I think back to what I wish I would have done more of, um, I want to say the two things that stand out are psychology and econometrics. So one that helps me understand investor behavior. So, you know, what people call behavioral finance and uh, the other that helps me be a better forecaster at the end of the day. Great. And uh, before we move to our quick fire questions, um, how do you think investors should position themselves uh, in the face of the recessionary risk uh, you're talking about? Um, well, I think it's going to become very clear that the Fed will have to cut rates a lot more than they believe. I think the economy is going to slow precipitously in the back half of the year and into 2025. Again, two year anniversary of the rise in rates. Um, so as we digest uh, the lagged effects. And so um, that means that bonds are very interesting. And bonds is usually the best asset class to be in once the Fed is done raising rates. You know, it's not exciting stuff, let's be honest. You know, when you tell people that they need to buy more bonds, they start to yawn. You know, and when you tell them that uh, they need to tilt their equity holdings toward segments that are very stable like consumer staples and healthcare and utilities, you know, um, you really lose people's interest, but that's how you survive, you know, a, uh, a bear market, which is inevitably a byproduct of recessions. Uh, so, um, you know, very defensively is, uh, is the answer. Also, I'd just like to get your opinion on another question before we close off the economic segment. The occupancy rate of office real estate is at half pre-pandemic level. What do you think is the effect of that decline in occupancy according to you? And do, do you believe it's an indicator of something? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so commercial real estate has, um, you know, big problems because the pandemic has emptied a lot of offices and, um, and, you know, normally commercial real estate has a problem when the economy slows because there's companies that will go out of business or will try to, re you know, they'll do layoffs, they'll need less office space, et cetera. And so slowdown is not um, typically a good backdrop for commercial real estate. And the starting point in this one is already uh, critical. And so uh, I think, you know, commercial real estate is going to be kind of a rolling crisis in the next couple of years. Um, you know, yesterday we had uh, New York Community Bank Corp um, that uh, came out and said that 48%, they saw a 48% rise in uh, the default in their portfolio of loans in the last three months of the year. And the stock price was almost cut in half in a day. Um, you know, and so the reality is that if if I'm right about the economy, and so if it's not different this time around, um, you know, and the economy does indeed respond to the lagged effects of rates and slows, well, commercial real estate, you know, the pressure is only going to keep growing um, in the major uh, in the major cities. And, uh, you know, it's real estate companies, it's REITs, real estate companies that own, you know, all these portfolios and it's banks that finance them. So there is a chain effect uh, to all this. I was really and it's mainly the smaller banks that have a lot of exposure to this around the US. 
Um, I was really surprised in January during the uh, earnings reporting season for the fourth quarter how terrible this was for banks. And almost 80% of regional banks in the US or the smaller banks missed their earnings targets, which to me is a sign that there's clearly something that the investment community is missing. You know, when you're that far off on uh, on your targets. Uh, so I think it's, um, you know, it, it, it will, we're just going to add pressure and an economic slowdown to that part of the world. Now, at the same time, we know commercial real estate has problems. That's the good part of the story. You know, in an economic slowdown, it's the things you don't know that end up surprising you. You know, there we already know that there's uh, ongoing issues. Um, you know, a slowdown is a discovery process. Um, you know, and the example that I sometimes give is uh, during the financial crisis, you know, I, I left uh, Bear Stearns, my last day at Bear Stearns, well, it was Feb 1, 2007, so today is the anniversary, um, and uh, the stock price that day was $169.50, and I guarantee you there was nobody in that building, none of my colleagues that thought that subprime was a problem. Everybody still thought it was an incredible opportunity. And 13 months later, the firm was gone, you know, and so a firm that had been around for 80 years. And so there's going to be surprises like that in, uh, you know, this year and next. That's just a byproduct of an economic downturn. And so while commercial real estate is definitely one of those risks, you know, it's the things that we don't know that, um, you know, are the bigger risks, in my opinion. Great. And now let's move to our uh, rapid fire question segment. So these are questions that can be answered in only a few sentences or a few words. OK, um, first, how do you think students should go uh, about finding an internship? Um, well, it's a lot easier uh, to do nowadays. Um, but, you know, you need to stand out. That's the the, the clear thing. And so sending random emails, you know, to me doesn't do a whole lot. Uh, we just hired someone because he kept calling. You know, he just it, he was getting a little annoying, but at the same time, you know, we were thinking, well, we need a salesperson who's going to make a lot of phone calls. You know, this is the guy that clearly doesn't take no. Um, so, you know, I've met with um, a lot of uh, classes of students in New York over the years, you know, a lot of former clients of mine end up going to academia and then they want to take their uh, students through New York. You know, and they come for a few days and they visit the stock exchange, do all sorts of meetings. And most people would come into the meeting thinking I'm going to talk to them about the economy and the stock market. And I would always tell them, look, we can do that or we can spend an hour. I'm going to tell you how to find a job. And um, I remember doing this for a group of students from. Um, so there was two groups that day that were together. One was from the University of Wisconsin, and the other one was from IE Business School in Spain. And um, there's about 50 students in the room, and I told them, you know, you need to, everybody you're going to meet this week is potentially your next employer, or someone that will give you your dream job in 10 years, but you have to nurture those relationships. And so I told them that anybody that send me a handwritten thank you note, I would help them find a job. And out of 50, how many do you think I got? 50? 50. Two. 
I got two um, balloons. Look at that. It's like I just celebrated my birthday. Um, I got two, and both of them I ended up hiring. Uh, and uh, and to this day, uh, different individuals, but I have three people from that program at the University of Wisconsin that work for me now. Um, and so, you know, it's nurturing relationships that's important. It's a lot easier to do nowadays um, for your generation than it was for mine, um, you know, because you have the opportunity to do that in so many different venues, including, uh, you know, LinkedIn. Um, but picking up the phone doesn't hurt. Um, you know, nobody calls anymore. And so when your phone rings, now you typically answer, um, you know, people that send me an email with their resumes and I have hundreds of emails in a day. And so it often gets lost, uh, you know, in the shuffle. And so, um, you know, that would be uh, my my biggest advice. What is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? So when I started um, in the, um, uh, so I was leaving um, Montreal to go work in the US in a more prominent role, but again, on what we call the sell side. And so publishing research, not managing money, which is the buy side. And uh, someone told me, don't confuse uh, attention for importance. And I didn't understand how wise that was at the time, but you know, you get to, um, you know, when I was, uh, the chief strategist at Bear Stearns, I would I would do a lot of media, and um, you know I would get recognized in the streets, and I got invited to you know to go speak at the the the, the YMCA on 92nd Street, you know, which has had you know they had Nelson Mandela, Bill Clinton, you know they've had all sorts of very prominent speakers over the years. It's kind of a famous uh, you know uh, gig. I've been on Wall Street Week three times, you know, a show that's been around since the 1960s. And so, uh, you know, to me, that was really, really wise because, um, you know, his point was that you're going to be courted left and right. Um, but at the end of the day, we're not curing cancer. You know, it's uh, it's not what we do. And so that, I think, is the most valuable piece of uh, advice I've gotten. Great. And in one word, how would you describe uh, your career? How would I describe my career in one word? Yeah. Uh, well, um, you know, I'm really proud of what I've accomplished and, um, you know, but at the same time, there was a lot of luck involved, a lot of hard work involved. And, um, you know, I feel like I, uh, you know, right now, uh, it took me a long time, but I feel like right now I'm in the best role I've ever had. Um, and so, you know, this is a bit of a tangent on what you're asking me, but, you know, you don't need to think you're settling for a job. You're not going to have your dream job, you know, with your first job. You're working toward it. And I think you have to think about it that way. Take the best elements from any job you get and leverage it into something better down the road. And on a scale of one to 10, how important would you say your GPA is as a student? Um, I am the wrong person to ask that to because I was not a great uh, student. You know, I look at my kids and I'm uh, I'm amazed at how well they do. Um, I was great at math. That was my subject. I was pretty much lousy at uh, at everything else. And so, uh, you know, 
um, I think it depends on, um, you know, what you want to do in life. I think there's plenty of examples of, uh, you know, people that didn't have a high GPA that still became very successful. Obviously, it helps you, you know, because you're likelier to get an interview. You're likelier to get, you know, opportunities, but it doesn't mean that it's impossible. And I would say I'm a great example of that. I was not a star student by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, that's why I said I'm the wrong person to uh, to ask that to. Um, I think it's less important than it used to be. All right. Thank you for your time and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. The sole purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform our listeners. It is by no means a substitute for professional guidance by qualified experts. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute financial or other professional advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your career options, as well as financial undertakings with other professionals who specialize in wealth, securities, and asset management, or any other field in financial services. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at a personal and individual risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The views expressed on this platform are personal opinions and only, and should not be construed as financial advice for a given situation or from a given institution. While all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for specific circumstances, and information may become outdated over time. No firm, nor any company providing financial support endorses or opposes any particular view or tools discussed in this podcast. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted towards the content of this podcast is forbidden. This podcast may not be edited, modified, or redistributed. The Corporate Chat Podcast has no liability for any personal activities in connection with this podcast or for personal use of this podcast in connection with personal websites, computers, or playing devices. Moreover, the Corporate Chat Podcast makes no warranty that this podcast, or the server that makes it available, is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. McGill University and our sponsors expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.